in chapter 5, starting in verse 9. Revelation chapter 5, starting in verse 9. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of angels, many angels, numbering myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Let me pray. Lord, we come before you in need of you to illumine our minds so we would understand your word rightly. We would understand who you are and how you work. And Lord, to soften our hearts so that we would be repentant and we would rejoice in your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, how many of you are ever overwhelmed, just overwhelmed by the distress in the fallen world around you and your inability to do anything about it? Is anybody in here? It's not just me then. I'll I'll give you some examples of problems that overwhelm me. And I'm not trying to start off to depress you. Although it will, that's not what I'm trying to accomplish. Let me give some examples. One, our culture is increasingly becoming godless. Increasingly becoming godless. And as a result of our godlessness, according to Romans 1.18 and following... God's wrath is revealed against us. And Paul isn't talking there about the end time wrath of God, although he gets to it in Romans chapter 2. What he's talking about there is the fact that God removes from us a sense of grace and turns us, or common grace, and turns us over to our sin. It says it three times in, actually in Romans one eighteen and following. That as we become increasingly godless, we increasingly are turned over to our sin. And so what we see as our nation becomes increasingly godless is a massive moral degradation of our society. To the extent that we're actually having to vote on Tuesday as to whether marriage is between a man or a woman or not. Is it between a man and a woman or not? That's a vote. It's like getting together to vote on whether a triangle has three sides. Of course it does, but yet we're doing it. Why? Because there is a general moral degradation in our society. And where does that come from? That comes from a people who reject God and therefore turned over to their sin. And that depresses me. That overwhelms me. 
the evangelical church in America is becoming increasingly weak in its pursuit of holiness. In fact, rather than pursuing holiness, the evangelical church is doing something that it's probably done for, this is probably the first time it's ever done in the history of the church. It's actually test marketing the world to find out what it wants and then trying to do that in the church. For the first time, probably in the history of the church, Christians are not saying, how do we become more like Christ? How do we become increasingly holy? What Christians are saying is, how do we become more like the rest of the world so they'll come and hang out with us? I'm going to move this around. It's kind of loose, I think. Evangelism is becoming weak in the evangelical church. People just aren't generally interested to share their faith anymore. Don't want to talk about it. The church is actually shrinking in America as a result of it because less people are becoming Christians than are walking away from the church. A commitment to rigorously study the word and to know it, to be informed about what the word says is going away. I talk to pastors now who don't think they need to be experts in the word anymore. They think they need to be really good at running events. You see billions of people who don't know Christ, right? Billions of people who don't know Christ. And it's almost so overwhelming, we just don't want to do anything about it. You guys ever follow me, follow with me on that one? Do you ever see all the billions of people and go, I can hardly make a dent. What's the point of even trying? Constantly frustrated about a family member or a friend who's stuck in the same sin pattern and there doesn't seem to be a thing you can do about it. You can't do anything to bring change in their life. And it overwhelms you. Or you see people who you know walking away from Christ and there's nothing you can do to convince them otherwise. I'm having a conversation with I'm having a conversation with someone from our church right now on my uh, Facebook. All right, so I reveal that I have a Facebook. Um, and, and I'm having a conversation with this guy right now who played the drums up here for almost two years in the beginning of this church, who now tells me he's not a Christian anymore and posts that publicly. I can't tell you how much that overwhelms me with the sense of inability to do anything about it. I want to track him down and shake him back into Christianity. I can't. Our natural inclination in these scenarios is to do what? Our natural inclination in these scenarios is to do one of two things. If you're like one category of people, the natural inclination is to give up, become depressed, and wallow in pity. That's one inclination. If you're like me, your natural inclination is to pull yourself up by your bootstraps, think of a new strategy, and decide that you're going to go to war with the world and you're going to win. That doesn't help either. But that's your other strategy. Very rarely is our strategy in these scenarios to pray. Very rarely do we think we should pray 
Mine's not to pray generally. Mine's to think of a new strategy to fix it, not to ask God to. Yet prayer is necessary. I want you to hear this. Prayer is necessary to accomplish God's ends. And I don't think we believe that's true. I don't think we believe prayer. This is, I've got a problem here. I don't think we believe prayer is necessary to accomplish God's ends. I believe that we have to get our minds around one fundamental truth. Got to get our minds around one fundamental truth, and this is this. God is sovereign. Did you hear that? God is sovereign. God rules. He's in control of all things. So when I see that the world's out of control, when I see that it's so great, the problems, there's nothing I can do about it. When I see that it's just becoming a mess and there's no way, no matter what strategy I come up with, that I can resolve it, I have to, I have to return to the fact that God is in control of it all. He's sovereign. Nothing is outside of his hand. Nothing. I have to go back to that. And he's sovereign over the end of it all. Sovereign over the ends of it all. And he's also sovereign over the means to those ends. And sometimes I can get a hold of the fact that he's sovereign over the ends, but I don't like the fact that he's sovereign over the means. Because I want to determine what the means to the ends are, not him. I could do it better. I was telling Jason as we were driving over here this morning, I see the young man I referred to walking away from the Lord and I think, I wish I could fix him. And I th- my thought in my mind is, if, and I would never say this, but if I were God, this is what I would do. Because I don't trust God's ends. And I don't trust his means. I don't trust that he'll work the way he says he will. So I don't turn to them. And one of the means God uses to bring about his ends is prayer. It's one of the means he uses to bring about his ends. And his people just don't pray. And yet he says it's necessary So what I want to talk about today and remind you of is the necessity and the importance and the power of prayer. And I want to plead with you. I want to plead with you to start praying. To start asking the Lord to do something about things. He will. He's good. I want you to know that if we pray, if we do what God commands, he will honor it. He's sovereign over the ends and he's sovereign over the means, which means that both are guaranteed. Do you hear that? The end is guaranteed. The means to the end is guaranteed to be effectual to accomplish it. If you want to understand that, look at, just keep your hand at Revelation 5. Look at Matthew 28. Matthew 28. I want you to see this passage in light of what I just read in Revelation 5. You guys are familiar with Matthew 28, starting in verse 18. 
And going through verse 20, this is the Great Commission. And most people are so familiar with the Great Commission, they can cite it off the top of their head if they've been in church long enough. Because if they have a pastor who cares about missions, he's citing it all the time. And in my case, if you went through my youth group and now you're around here, you know the Great Commission because I, it seems like it's the only verse in the Bible I may have known. But here it is. All, Jesus comes to them and he says this, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority in heaven and earth been given to me go therefore here's the command i'm the king i'm sovereign i rule over all things go therefore and make disciples of all nations this is something we have to do here's the command go and make disciples of all nations how baptizing them in the name of the father and of the son and the holy spirit and teaching them to obey everything i've commanded you And then he says this last one, and surely I'll be with you always to the end of the age. Here's what's incredible about this. We go, okay, we have this command. The Lord is in charge. He's given us a command. Sometimes we don't stop to realize he's told us the outcome of the command already. He's already told us the outcome of the command. Here's the command. Go and make disciples of all nations. And then... Jesus, through his Holy Spirit, gives a revelation to John, the apostle, in which John rends the curtain of eternity and shows us the fulfillment of the great commission Jesus commanded us to do. Think of it. Go to all the nations. In the Bible, you have not only the command, i.e. the means by which the end is accomplished, you have the picture of the fact that the ends will be accomplished. It's guaranteed. It's guaranteed. Go, make disciples of all nations. And then Revelation chapter 5, we get this picture of the end in which we see the accomplishment of that where he says this, Verse 9, and they sang a new song. This is in the throne room. Sang a new song saying, worthy are you, that's Jesus, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God, for God from where? From every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Hear that? Go make disciples. Now, let me rent the, rent the curtain of heaven and let me show you what the future looks like. The disciples are made. It, in fact, is fulfilled. Think of that. Does that not give you confidence to go and make disciples when you know that the outcome is already told to you? It's going to work. You're going to give me a new one? Okay. Okay, well, that's going to be a problem in the CD mix, isn't it? Okay, he's told us the end. He's given us the means, and he's told us the end. Sovereign over both. It's guaranteed. I don't know what gives me more comfort to come and preach to you on Sunday morning, to attempt a church plant, than to know that the end will happen. It'll happen. No matter how discouraged I am, 
about the world around me, no matter how discouraged I am about things falling apart, I know what the end is. And you know what? That gives me courage to go after it. I'm sure some people would say, though, here's the question that comes up when you say this. What's the point of obeying the Great Commission if it's already guaranteed to be fulfilled? I mean, why preach or pray if it's already determined and written down in the Bible that it's going to happen? Won't it happen anyway? Won't this all come to pass even if we don't preach and pray? Now, let me tell you the answer to it. No. No, it won't. But you just said it's guaranteed. Yes, I did. But I thought you said that God is sovereign over the ends and the ends will come to pass. Certainly, he will not fail to bring them about. This prophecy is true and you're guaranteed that it's going to happen. Yes, I am saying that. But didn't you just say it won't happen if we don't preach and pray? Yes, I did. Well, how do you reconcile that in your brain? I don't know. My brain is small. I don't have to reconcile it. All I know is the Bible tells me it's true. It's true that God is sovereign over the ends. And it's true that he's sovereign over the means to those ends. The means to that end is that we obey the Great Commission. That we preach and we pray. And that's how God sovereignly brings the ends. But let me tell you how that happens. He, it's not like God just says, okay, I'm going to leave it to all of you unregenerate people to bring it about. What he does is he sends his spirit to change us and he works in us to ensure we will keep his commands so that it will be brought about. But prayer is necessary for that end. It's necessary. Necessary for that end. In Revelation 21 and 22... John gives us a picture of the fact that God's kingdom is here on earth, doesn't he? Gives a picture of it. God's kingdom, his will's been fulfilled on earth as it has in heaven. Yet Jesus tells us to pray how? Your will be done, right? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And John tells us that's going to happen. Yet Jesus commands us to pray for it. Jesus understands it's necessary for us to ask God for that, for him to bring it about. And that it's guaranteed that he will bring it about. Does anybody doubt that God's will is going to be done on earth as it is in heaven? Anybody really doubt that? Of course not. Nobody doubts that. If you're a believer in Christ, you know it's going to happen. But yet Jesus tells us to pray for it. We should pray Because God has told us that prayer is the means, or a means, I should say, is a means through which he brings about his glorious ends. That's why we should pray. Prayer is a necessary means through which God brings about his end. That's why we should pray. God didn't superintend his writing in such a way that we're just playing a game. We are all getting together and preaching the word and praying. And God's just playing some divine game with us. This is a legitimate means by which God works. It isn't just psychology. You know, I hear people say that. Well, 
We don't really change anything when we pray. What happens is we change. You guys heard that before? We change when we pray. Nothing about what God's going to do changes. We change. As if prayer is a psychological exercise that God has given to us that has no real effectiveness or meaning. It's just, hey, you know, I really want my people to change, so I'm going to fake them out with this whole thing that if they pray, I might do something. And so then they'll feel better and they'll change and then, and then what I want will somehow be accomplished because they'll be different. That isn't what prayer is. Does it change you? Absolutely. However, it's effective to do something. It's not just psychology. God is immutable and unchanging. However, God has determined in his eternal decree to provide a means to his creature that if we pray, he will work in response to it. That's what he says. So we should pray because it's effective to accomplish his ends. God guarantees it will be. Our praying and our preaching is not just helpful It's necessary. Necessary in what? In vindicating Christ in his church. Vindicating Christ in his church. And by vindicating, I mean shown to be right. Showing that his command and his mission are true and good and justified. People mocked Christ, didn't they? In his life and on the cross and ever since. They've mocked him. And one day, he will be vindicated in all nations. He will be shown to be God and to be glorious and to be the ruler of all things. In all nations, he'll be shown to be that. In fact, all of history is a backdrop of God's judgment against those who are in sin and his, so that his mercy is shown. That's the backdrop. God's judgment against those who are in sin so that he can show his mercy in Christ. That's what he wants to do. He created it all to praise his own grace. You hear that? Everything that's happened to praise his own grace. He's going to vindicate his name. How do I know that? Am I making that up? No. In Ephesians chapter 1, look there really quickly and keep your hands on Revelation 5. Ephesians chapter 1, we see that God did all this for the purpose of vindicating his son to making his grace look marvelous. He says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 3 of Ephesians 1, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Why? Verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace. That's the purpose. Why did he do all this? To the praise of his glorious grace. In case that isn't clear enough, go down to verse 12. So that he goes on talking about the fact that we've been predestined according to God's will. He goes on in verse 12 and says, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. During verse 14, talking about the Holy Spirit being the guarantee of our inheritance. And he says this at the end of verse 14, to the praise of his glory. Three times he repeats that. Romans 9, he says, what if God has done all this so that 
the vessels of his mercy can see the glory of his grace is the paraphrase. Revelation chapter 5, what is the song that we sing? Verse 9, and they sang a new song. What is that song? This is what we sing in eternity. Saying this, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Go to verse 12. Saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain. You hear what we sing about for eternity? The cross. We sing for eternity about the death of Jesus. It's what it's all about. We can glory in Calvary, as we just sang earlier, for eternity. It's what it's all about. That's the whole, that's the end. And the means or a means to get to that end is prayer. A necessary means to get to that end is prayer. The Apostle Paul understood this. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Starting in verse 11, Paul says this. To this end, we always pray for you. Why are they always praying for you? Why is Paul always praying for Thessalonica? That our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. Do you hear that? Listen. Paul says, I'm constantly praying for you. Why? So that every good thing that you want to set your hand to do as believers, God will fulfill in you. Do you understand? Paul understands these believers can't even do the good things they'd like to do without God working in them to do them. So he has to pray. We are helpless without God working in us. And even if we set out to do a good thing, Daryl and Linda are going on a mission trip. Even when they set out to do a good thing with good intentions, unless we pray, God cannot fulfill that work in them or will not, I should say, fulfill that work in them. So we pray. They pray that God will fulfill that work. And he does. Because they can't do it alone. They have no power in and of themselves to change anybody. So they pray and we pray so God will work or else nothing will happen. Hear that? They'll go and they'll hammer nails or they'll do whatever they do and no one will change. Because God has to work for people to change. And God says, if you want me to work, you need to be praying. Pray and I'll work. Ask me. I'll be happy to do it. Look what he says, though. So that, verse 12, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you. Hear that? That's the ultimate end he has. Why do I pray God to work in you? So that the name of our Lord Jesus be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So that God would be glorified in you and you in him. I want you to hear that second part of it. Not only does Paul pray that Christ would be vindicated, shown to be right and just and glorious. Paul prays that his church will be vindicated. Hear that? Because the 
vindication of Christ and the vindication of his people are inextricably linked together. Woven together. That's why in Revelation 6, when the people are at the throne room of God praying, they're dead, they've been killed, they're martyrs. They're at the throne room of God and they're praying what? In heaven. How long, O Lord, till you avenge our blood? And the Lord's reply to them, just a little longer. You have to wait till Jesus vindicates his own name. When he does, he'll vindicate you also. And we should be praying for that. Jesus, Jesus commanded us to pray for the vindication of the church and himself. Luke chapter 18. He's not, Paul's not the only one who said, look at Luke chapter 18. This text, in fact, absolutely floored me when I first read it. Um, I want you to hear the implication of it. He's telling them a parable, and listen to this parable. And he, that being Jesus, told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Here's the point of the parable. Always pray, don't lose heart. Right? That's why he told them this parable. That's what he wants to motivate them to do. Always pray and don't lose heart. Because you need to pray. Because it's necessary that you pray for my ends to be accomplished. If my name will be vindicated and my church will be vindicated, it will be vindicated when you pray. So always pray and don't lose heart. You think that sounds like an overstatement or an exaggeration? Look at the text. Verse 2. He said this. In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. This is an ungodly judge. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. What's she praying for? What's she asking for from this judge? Vindication. I want justice. I want vindication. Look what he goes on and says this. For a while he refused. But afterward, this is an unjust judge. Afterward, he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, Yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I'll give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. Then he goes on and says this. And the Lord said, that being Jesus, the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God, hear this? Will not God give justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Do you hear that? Do you hear what he said? Will not God give justice? In other words, will not God vindicate his elect vindicate his people and ultimately himself look at the next render that verse when the son of man comes will he find faith, faith on the earth nevertheless when the son of man comes will he find faith on the earth he's talking about his return here he says you want me to return and vindicate myself and vindicate my people won't i do it if you ask me to won't i what does he say? 
Will not God give justice to his elect who what? Cry out to him day and night. Surely he will come speedily. You hear what Jesus just said? Does that not blow your mind a bit? Jesus just said, if you would cry out to me day and night, I'll come back. I'll vindicate my name in my church. I'll do it speedily. When will God return to vindicate his name in his church in all the nations? When my people cry out to me day and night. Jesus just said it's necessary that we pray for his ends to be accomplished. And guaranteed that when we do, they will be. I want you to notice something I haven't said. I haven't said prayer is the only means to God's end. Prayer is a means to his end. A means. It's not the only means. The primary means to God's end is the preaching of the word. That's the primary means. The taking of the word and going forth to the nation and preaching the gospel so people can hear. That's why Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for all who believe, the Jew first and also the Greek. He says, the word of God in Ephesians 5 is the sword of the spirit, right, in our fight against the devil. The word of God is what is sharper than any two-edged sword dividing joint and marrow. The word of God is what is God-breathed and is useful for correcting and teaching and rebuking and training in righteousness so that the man of God is thoroughly equipped for every good work. The word of God is that which through, our, through which our mind is renewed so that we are transformed. The word of God is that which takes every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. The word of God is the primary means. However... We can't pick up the sword of God's word and wield it if we're not praying. John Piper actually said it this way. Prayer is the power that wields the weapon of the word. And the word is the weapon by which the nations will be brought to faith and obedience. Prayer is the power which wields the weapon of the word. And the word is the weapon by which the nations will be brought to faith and obedience. We have to pray if we're going to wield the weapon of the word, which is how we win in this battle. We have to pray. Paul understood that. That's why in Ephesians 6, after he talks about the sword of the spirit, what does he go on to say? He said, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And then he's going on to say, praying at all times, doesn't he? To pray at all times. He understands the connection. So there are four things I want to give us to pray for. You guys ready? Here are the four things we need to be praying for as a church. I'm asking you to go before God during the week and pray for these four things. Asking to pray for it constantly. One. This come, these all come from the scripture, by the way. Matthew 9, 37 and 38. Jesus gives us a command to pray for what? He says this. The Lord of the harvest wants us to do what? He wants us to pray 
and ask him to send out workers into his harvest field. We need to pray that God would raise up people to send out to the ends of the earth to preach the gospel. Pray that God would raise up people here to preach the gospel to the lost and dying in this city. We need to ask the Lord of the harvest to do it. And if we do, he will. Two, we need to pray that God will open a door for the gospel for our missionaries and for our church. Pray that God will open a door for the gospel for our missionaries and our church. Ask him to make the word clear through them. Colossians chapter 4 verse 3. Three, we must pray that the word will be honored. We've got to pray that the word will be honored and that our missionaries and church will be delivered from evil men. Pray the word will be honored and our missionaries and church will be delivered from evil men. Second Thessalonians chapter three, verses one and two says that specifically. And fourth, we must pray our missionaries and our church will remain strong in the spiritual battle. That we will put on the full armor of God, that we will wield the sword well, that we have boldness to speak the word. Ephesians chapter 6, 18 through 20. I want you to understand something. Satan isn't playing games. Satan is trying to destroy people's lives and he's alive and well and he's very proficient. And I'm watching him pick off people I love and wreck their lives. And we got to pray for him because this is a war we're in. I think sometimes we pray like we're at the carnival or something. Everything's hunky-dory and good, and I'll pray if the line gets a little bit too long at the carnival or they ran out of the popcorn I wanted, or occasionally I'll ask for something if I'm uncomfortable. And we don't pray like we're in a war, and we are. We're in a war. We've got to pray like it. God will do something. We have a student, John, who helped plant this church, who now says he doesn't believe in Christ. That's a casualty of war. You hear that? We've got to pray for him. We've got to be on our face asking the Lord for him. This isn't a joke. And I think sometimes we think we can get it done without praying, and we can't. We have to ask God. But let me say this. If we ask the Lord of the harvest to send workers into his harvest field, you know what he'll do? He'll send workers into his harvest field. And if we ask the Lord of the harvest to open a door for the gospel for our missionaries, you know what he'll do in people in our church? He'll open a door for the gospel. And if we ask him to honor his word and to deliver us from the hands of evil men, he will honor his word and deliver us from the hands of evil men. And if we ask him to keep us strong in the spiritual battle so that we wield the sword of the spirit well, he will keep us strong 
and we will wield the sword well. Why? Because God has guaranteed the ends and he's guaranteed the means to those ends. If you will pray, I will do it. You don't have because you don't ask. That's what Jesus tells us. And if a earthly father who's full of sin will give good gifts to his children, how much more will your father in heaven give good gifts to you? If you ask him for some bread, is he going to give you a rock instead? Of course not. God will keep his promises. And he promises us that if we ask, he will do it. So we got to get to asking. We have to get to asking. And that's what I have to say to you today, Sovereign Grace. We have to get to asking the Lord to do it and know he will. Let me pray. Lord, we ask you to work powerfully in our people and in our church, um, in this community, in our missionaries around the world. Lord, we ask you to open a door for the gospel so that unbelievers will come to faith in Jesus Christ. We ask you, Lord, to honor your word, to deliver them from the hands of evil men. Lord, we ask you to keep us strong in the spiritual battle that we might wield the sword of the Spirit well. Lord, we ask you to raise up workers for the harvest to go and proclaim the glorious name of Jesus Christ to the nations and to those who are lost in this city. And we trust you that we'll, you'll do it, Lord. We ask you, we ask you, Lord, we plead with you to bring John back to faith. Lord, and Michael who walked away. And so many of our young people, Lord, that you, you desire to save and who Satan desires to destroy. We ask you to work powerfully, Lord, through us. And Lord, make us a people who are continually coming before you, knowing that you, our Father, are good and you desire, you desire, you guarantee to answer our prayers if we ask you according to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to take communion. We'll receive.